We're going to be in First Kings. Uh, we're going to do 2021-22. That seems like a lot, but I know that we can do it all together uh, in one sermon. It's all kind of talking about three little kind of snippet stories of this terrible King Ahab that we've been looking at as we've been going through First Kings. So if you will, uh, I'm going to read one little section uh, and then we will pray. But in First Kings chapter 21, verse 25, 21, 25, I want to zoom in on that one little section. And if you have a Bible, it probably has a little title above it. It says Ahab's repentance. Well, the titles are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so I'll come back to that in a second on whether we can talk about repentance versus remorse or whatever. Uh, but nevertheless, start at verse 25. I want to read this one little section. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejected. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me because he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would send your spirit, that you would teach us all um, to see and understand and know your word this morning. Um, we know that your word can do a number of things as we study it and learn from it. And so, Holy Spirit, we are desperate for your presence to come and teach us. I am also desperate for you, Holy Spirit, to speak through me. No man is, inca- is capable of, of preaching without the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, please come now and use me this morning. Uh, all the things that, I can, that I've written down that would be good and helpful to say, help me say those things. The things that, that would not be for this particular time, Lord, uh, keep me from those things. I pray that you would use <clears throat> your word to glorify yourself and to draw all of us to Christ. I pray that even as we look through First Kings, um, a book that was written hundreds of years before Jesus, that you would help us see Christ in the text because we know that Christ is in every verse. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you ever go on a vacation uh, or you go to a house or you stay at someone's house for a week or you borrow it or anything like that, and you go to there and you walk into the house and there's a layout of the furniture in the, in the living room and all that and all the rest of the house, uh, you are usually, maybe you're, you would, but usually you're not free to just move the furniture around to the, how it would suit you for that week. You would have to just leave it there the way it is and just be like, well, it's just a week. I'm not going to change it. I'm going to accept it the way it is because this is how it was when I got here. It's not mine. Um, and a lot of ways you have to do the exact same thing with first Kings chapter 20, 21 and 22. You have to accept these three chapters and its arrangement and the way it settles, because these three chapters, uh, can arguably be said that it happens significantly later, 50 years later and the flow of the narrative. And it might not feel like it fits, but nevertheless, the Holy spirit, the inspired author of the whole Bible, as men wrote this Bible decided to put 2021 and 22 where it is. And so we must accept the way the Holy spirit has placed it. Now you probably didn't walk in even realizing there was a big deal, but now we all know it's there. And as we're reading through it, you might think this is, this is interesting. If you did a bunch of research. Why is it here? You know, commentaries, commentators have written tons and tons of stuff on, on why it's here and the timing of it all. But we can all just know this. We can kind of take one giant step back in our, uh, commentaries trying to figure out why it's here and and the placing of it and the timing of it and chronology and 50 years later and just say, Hey, you know what? If I believe that God inspired the Bible and I believe that 20 follows after 19 and here we are at 2021 and 22, then it should be here because God wants it here. So let's go ahead and study it the way it is. So, um, that's what we're going to do. The main thing that 20, 21 and 22 are going to do is talk about Ahab. And if you remember, Ahab was one of the Kings that we were studying just a terrible guy. And it's going to talk about his failures and how the word of God stands against him and his failures. If you want to kind of have a refresher on just how horrific of a guy this is, if you go to chapter 16, 
Uh, and you go to verse 29. In the 38th year of the king Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And it tells us that he reigned for 22 years, which is a pretty long time. And Ahab, the son of Omri, this is verse 30, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So all the kings that had ever come before in Israel, here came Ahab, and he was the worst of all of them. And then he also married uh, Jezebel, who was who was awful. And uh, she also did tons of terrible stuff. And you look at verse 33, Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So he's just a terrible person, terrible, terrible guy. And he's the king of Israel. And so what we're going to look at in 20, 21 and 22 is how Ahab's failures um, kind of follow in this in these three chapters and how God's word through using of prophets stand against him. And so uh, we're going to see 2021, 20, 22, God uh, in 20 and how it stands against him. The, the idea of justice in 21 and how he doesn't practice it uh, in 22, how the Lord's word through the through the prophets also stand against him. So if we were to take chapter 20, 21 and 22, we would look at it. Uh, in preaching class, we would have we would have said, okay, uh, the way you want to do this is not just preach the narrative and just show you uh, here's what Ahab did, here's what Ahab did, here's what Ahab did. Instead, because that's something that happened in the past, they tell you take those past statements and put them in a present tense state so that they apply to the hearers. And so I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to walk through that entire way to help you help you understand it. This will not be on the screen, but if you were to summarize 20, 21, and 22, it would be. Ahab's opposition to the Lord. That's what, that's what 20, 21 and 22, they, they tell us Ahab's, this is not on screen, Ahab's opposition to the Lord. Chapter 20 would be Ahab didn't do God's will because whenever he was opposed to the Lord, he didn't do God's will. In chapter 21, Ahab didn't show mercy or justice. And 22, Ahab didn't show courage or faith or trust in God because he was opposed to the Lord. He didn't do his will. He didn't show mercy and he didn't practice faith or justice. And so what we're going to do is just take those three things and we're going to state it positively and in present day form. That's all I'm going to do. That's what Ahab, that's the negative things that Ahab did. And so we're going to learn from it as Christians by stating it positively. So um, Ahab was opposed to the Lord in 2021-22. Therefore, we as Christians don't want to be opposed to the Lord. Instead, we want to be in submission to the Lord. So you can go ahead and submitting our lives to the Lord. And Ahab didn't do God's will in chapter 20. And so if we want to state it positively and in present day form, it would be this. You can go ahead and put it up. The only true way to live for God is to live in God's in the Lord's will. The only true way to live for God is in the Lord's will. So you want to walk, you and I want to live out in the Lord's will. So we're going to look in chapter, that little 20 right there just means chapter Chapter 20. So now we're going to look in chapter 20 and we're going to see these, these ways that the Bible tells us that we should live within the Lord's will. So if you look at chapter 20, there was this guy named Ben-Hadad. He was the king of Syria at the time. Uh, this was not an Israelite king. This was not a great guy. You can see in verse 20, verse 1, he gathered uh, the army together and all of his people. 32 kings had come around him. So he had a big surrounding people that were ready to fight against Israel and the horses and chariots. And they went up and closed in on Samaria and they fought against it. And they sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, thus says Benadad. So Benadad sends all these people up to uh, Ahab. And he's basically going to say to Ahab, I, I'm coming in, I'm going to destroy you. And I want, I want some of your stuff. And so and it says your silver and your gold are mine and your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel thinking that, well, we can't beat these guys. So I probably should, should submit to him as you say, my Lord, I am yours all that I have. And so, uh, he's, he's agreeing upon this. And then it says in verse five, the messengers came again. And whenever they come again, this time, they're actually, they're like, you know what? I don't want just that stuff. I want more stuff. I want, I want even more. And so they said, um, the messengers came again and said, thus says Benadad, I sent to you saying, deliver me your silver, your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. And they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. So they're going to take, they're going to take a whole bunch of stuff. Um, the king of Israel called all the elders and land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and silver and gold, and I didn't refuse him. And all the elders of the people said to him, don't listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king um, all that you first demanded 
every servant I would do. But this th- second thing, basically, I can't do. And the messengers departed and brought word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him, the gods do so to me and more to also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, tell him, let him who straps on his armor boast himself as he takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, he was drinking with the kings in the booths. And he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. Basically, he said, your second demand I'm not going to meet. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to fight you. Okay, well, let's get, let's, let's fight. We're going we're gonna to fight now. So here we are. Uh, and we see in verse 13, we're going to finally, because it doesn't look so good right now. And we're going to have some hope. Now, we should remember, it feels a little weird because Ahab's the king. And we have this foreign king, Ben-Hadad, wanting to take him over. But we as readers, we're like, I'm still on the side of Ahab because that's Israel. But Ahab's terrible. So do I even care? Do I even care? Well, we kind of still care. We still want Israel to win. But we know Ahab's bad. That's, that's kind of where we're in a position. Movies do that to you. They make you root for the bad guy. Like when you're watching, you're like, yeah, rob the, the bank. No, wait, you're not supposed to rob banks. Banks are bad. You know, but nevertheless, here we are. Um, the Bible's not trying to make you root for bad people. Anyway, so, uh, and behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says the Lord. So finally, we're going to have some hope here. Uh, a prophet's going to come and he's going to say something that basically like, hey, I'm going to help you out. But there's a reason why. And it, uh, behold, a prophet came near to King Ahab of Israel and said, thus says the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude? Like the, Ben-Hadad's got a lot of people. Behold. I will give it into your hand this day. So I'm going to help you defeat these people that you, there's no way that you can defeat. And then he says this, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now that you is singular. He wants Ahab to realize that I'm the Lord God. And I want you to know that. Now there's another place he's going to say this. If you look over in verse 28, uh, in verse 28, where he says, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you is plural. So he wants all Israel to know it in 28. But right here in this particular verse, he wants Ahab to know it. And Ahab said, by whom? So he's like, if you're going to win, let me win, uh, can, got a couple questions for you. Could you straighten some things out? And he said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. And he said, who shall begin the battle? And he answered you. So he's like, who's going to start this battle, uh, Yahweh? And he's like, you're going to start it. Then he mustered the servants of the governors in the districts. So there were about 232. And he, after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, about 7,000. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and 32 kings who helped him. So he goes to fight against Ben-Hadad, who's drinking at, the, at noon. Uh, and so... Th- this obviously is going to help because he's going to say some crazy things. Verse 17, the servants of the governors of the districts first went out and Ben-Hadad sent scouts and they reported to him, men are coming out from Syria. Now, here's the crazy drunk statement for war. And he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. But if they've come out for war, take them alive. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't help in war if you fight against people and try to keep them alive, but that's because he's drunk and he doesn't know what he's saying. Um, and so here you're thinking, all right, so we're, we're talking about and, and, and a live in Marvel and at his grace, where's the grace? Well, we've already heard it in 13 and now we're going to see it in, in verse 19 through 22. So these people went out of the city and the servants of the governors and the districts and the army that followed them each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben Hadid, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen and and the king of Israel went out and struck down the horses and chariots and struck down the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, come strengthen yourself, consider well what you have done for the for in the spring, the king of Syria will come against you basically again. He's going to come again. So here we see that God and his unbelievable grace just shows (laughs) amazing grace. That's a kind of a weird way to say it because grace is always amazing to Ahab whenever he totally didn't need to. Um, so he, he showed him this. And so as he, as he showed it to him, what Ahab should have done is he should have lived and he should have marveled in this grace, but he didn't, he didn't, but nevertheless we should. So uh, we can ask ourselves, um, because God comes and gives him this promise, this direction, this warning, and all of it's just a gift of God. He totally didn't have to do anything. It wasn't like Ahab was walking with the Lord and the Lord was like, since you're walking with me, let me keep these promises and help you. He was totally not. And God does it anyway. And so we can ask ourselves, um, why does Yahweh show this kindness to Ahab? 
What would be the point? Ahab wasn't doing anything that was reciprocating, following along with God. Why does he do this? And the answer would be, obviously, because God wants to. Um, But a better question is not, why does Yahweh show this kindness to Ahab? A better question is, why does God show any kindness and mercy to me? Why does he show it to me? Because really, we're all just like Ahab. Now, we might not do as much terrible things as he has, but we're still all have this bent towards sin and we have a bend towards rebelling against God. And even as Christ follows, we know that. And he still showed kindness and mercy towards us and saved us. And so we should ask the question, why does he do this for even me? And if grace has left a mark on us, if grace has come and we've been saved, what kind of difference is it? currently making in your life right now the lord wills that we marvel at his grace we should constantly marvel that the lord has been kind to us we shouldn't be like okay well i became a christian 40 years ago and so i'm so much sanctified and so of course god shows mercy towards me look how sanctified i'm in that's that's crazy talk right we should constantly marvel even if we've been christians for 40 years or 40 minutes constantly marvel that the lord continually shows us grace. Not only should we do that, but we also should live in his power. Um, And so we'll see that here in 23 through 30, as the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are the gods of hills. And so they were stronger than we. Uh, Now, this is this is poor theology. Um, These these servants of the king of Syria, these are likely his his prophets of some sort. And he says, their gods are the gods of hills. They were surely stronger than me. This, this is just poor theology. But let us fight against them in the plain and we will be stronger than them. So we can't beat them in the hills, but in the flatland, we got them. You know, if it's God, it doesn't matter where you fight him. You're going to lose if, he's, if it's his will that you're going to lose. Uh, and do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost for horse, for horse, chariot, for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we'll be stronger than they. And they listened to their voice, and they did this. So they're already planning for that spring. And then the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphak to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered uh, and were um, provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before like them, like, look at this. Two little flocks of goats. So as we see this, they were camped like two little flocks of goats, meaning that they still look pretty small compared comparatively. And then it says, but the Syrians filled the country. So when you see the contrast between the two of the Israelites, like two little flocks of goats and the Syrians fill, filling the country. Here we see this doesn't look so good. And a man of God came near and said to the king. So here we have another time where a man of God comes and says to the king. We see it in 13, we see it in 22, and now we see it in 28. Um, uh, constantly prophets being sent by God to talk to Ahab. And a man of God came near to the king of Israel. Thus says the Lord, because of the Syrians have said, the Lord is the God of hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I would give great multitude into your hands. Because the Syrians have terrible theology, theology and they think that God's not strong. I want to make sure that they understand God is strong. And then he says... Um, I would give this great multitude in your hand and you, this is plural, you shall know that I am the Lord. So he, he delivered them first so that Ahab would know that God is the Lord. He wanted Ahab to personally finally see uh, that, that Yahweh is Lord and that he should follow him. Like the reason why he did that is because he wants for him to follow him, to know uh, when it says, you shall know that I am the Lord. This no demands a response. It's not just mere knowledge in of itself. It's like, oh, okay, I know that. Thanks for letting me know that. Instead, when God wants us to know that he's the Lord, he doesn't want us just to know it cognitively. He wants to know it as a, as a means of volition of our will that demands a response from us that we literally change the way we live now based on this new information that we have. And so he wants all Israel now to know this. He wants you to know that I am the Lord. Not that they just kind of know it cognitively and don't do anything about it, but instead they alter the way way they live, which is why I said, when grace has left its mark on you, what difference has it made now in the way that you live? As we marvel at his grace, it should also cause us to live differently in light of the grace that we've been shown to us. So here we're going to see that... uh, We also should live in his power. The contrast in 27 shows us that Israel has no power outside of Yahweh. They're like two little goats 
and the Syrians are filling the country. And so they have to have the power of God if they're going to win. And so you can see how God's power is displayed in verse 29. In verse 29, it says, And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest uh, uh, fled into the city of Aphak, and the walls fell upon 27,000 men who were left that day. And so here we see um, that God's power is shown again through people of Israel. And so the same would be for us. When God's power is displayed through Israel, they have victory. We should also live in God's power. This, this literally means if you're a believer in Christ, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You should live constantly in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, don't be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. In the same way that you're filled with wine, you have a foreign substance that comes into your body, takes over your body and causes you to make poor decisions towards debauchery. In the same way, you have a foreign God coming into your body, causing you to make good decisions, not poor decisions that glorify God. Be filled with the spirit and live in such a way. You should live in such a way that you live in his power. And so um, when we don't live by this power that's made available to us, we believe then no differently than these pagan Syrians. We live just like the pagan Syrians, not even realizing the power that we have. The Lord wills that we live within his power. The Lord wills that we live in his power. If you keep going, you can also see that he wants us to know his judgment. We might wonder what the world that means, but I'm going to explain it to you. So verse 31, his servant said to him, behold, now we have heard on the, uh, that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. So they've lost twice. They realize that they, they, they've lost twice. Ben-Hadad, the king who was pushing all this, is going to get caught. And we're going to see how Ahab handles Ben-Hadad. Watch this. Um, Behold, now we've heard that the king of this house of Israel are merciful kings. Let's, let us put on sackcloth around our waists and robes around our heads and go to the king of Israel. Perhaps he'll spare our life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put robes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, please, please let me live. And he, he said, Does he still live? And this is what uh, Ahab says. He is my brother. What? No, he's not. He just tried to kill you twice. What are you doing, Ahab? This is where we're seeing the wickedness of Ahab come through. That little, he is my brother, uh, to the messengers, gives them clues like, okay, maybe he is going to be nice. And they run back and they tell Ben-Hadad, and you can see what happens. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they, and they quickly took it upon from him and said, yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. And so they, he said, go bring him. And Ben-Hadad came out to him, and they caused him to come up to the chariot. Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on your terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Why? Why would you do this? This doesn't make any sense. This, that's not something that the Lord obviously would want. Um, and so you have, it, seemingly when you get to verse 34, okay, well, maybe that was what was supposed to happen. Ahab was going to practice mercy like God practices mercy. And he's just going to be that way. And we we could close right there and think God must be totally fine with that. But he's not because verse 35 tells us God's not totally fine with that. 35 and a certain man of the sons of the prophets um, said to his fellow commander of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. I know that seems crazy. Just keep reading with me. We're going to keep going. Verse 37. And he found another man. Strike me, please. And the man struck him and wounded him. And the prophet departed and waited for the king, by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And the king passed. He cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing your life shall be for his life or else you will pay a talent of silver. So we'll stop just to make sure we understand. Prophet comes out and tells this guy to strike him and he doesn't do it. And he's like, all right, where a line's going to get you. And he does. And he tells another guy, he goes, strike me. And he strikes him. So he's like, okay, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wait here for the king. And I'm going to tell the king when he's going by, Hey King, uh, I was, I was out in battle. I found this guy and I was supposed to guard him with my life. But, you know, he he got away. Um, And so here's what's going to happen. As your servant, this is verse 40. uh, So he's got this thing around his uh, head. As the king passed, 
Uh, we go to 38. So the prophet departed and waited for the king to disguise him as for the bandit of his eyes. 39. The king passed. He cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. Behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me. Guard this man by any means. If he's missing, your life shall be of his life or you'll pay a talent of silver. Verse 40. And your servant was busy here and there as he was gone. Now, realize when in verse 40, when he says, And your servant was busy here and there. What this, this prophet is doing is he's describing Ahab to Ahab. He's saying, Ahab, this is you right now and how you deal with Ben-Hadad. You are just floating around, doing whatever you want, and not taking care of Ben-Hadad. And so, verse 40 says, So as your servant was busy here and there, that guy that was supposed to be guarding was gone. And the king of Israel hears all this. And of course, he knows the judgment. He goes, The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You've already decided it. You're supposed to watch this guy. You didn't watch this guy. It's supposed to be your life. Too bad. You You know the rules. And then... He hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as a prophet. And now here it is. It's like the, like the Nathan David. Here it is. And he goes, and he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man whom I devoted to destruction. Therefore, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went out to his house, vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. So basically he's like, you're the guy. That's exactly what you did. You had Ben-Hadad and you just messed around with him and didn't take care of him and get rid of him. And now this is what's going to happen. Now the Lord is going to take care of Israel. And it says, therefore, your life for his life, your people for his people, your people for his people. So we, we, it's, it's interesting. Um, we can see how at first uh, Israel was going to die and then they're saved. And now God's saying, because of your, your ability, inability to uh, take care of this, now you're going to have, um, you're going to have destruction come upon you. And so you can actually see this um, in 42, the exact plan that God had for Ben-Hadad. If you're wondering, does God really want Ben-Hadad to be destroyed? Well, the prophet tells him in verse 42, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand. Here it is. The man whom I had devoted to destruction. So Ben-Adad to God is literally the man devoted to Yahweh's destruction. So we have in verse 31, just to make sure we feel the contrast in verse 31, we have Israel and your servant said, behold, now we have heard that the king of the house of Israel, merciful kings, let us put on sackcloth. And so in verse 31, we have, uh, Ahab sparing Ben-Adad. And by verse 42, since he's done that, uh, Ahab's destroying his own people. And so, again, this is know his judgment. And you're like, okay, what does that mean when we talk about the only true way to live for God's will is to know his judgment, especially in this context. What, what does it mean here? Um, one might ask, isn't God a God of mercy? Isn't Ahab showing mercy like Yahweh says to and so what's going on here? What's, what's the point you're trying to make fun? Um, yes, God also has the right, even though he's a God of mercy, he also has the right to be a God of judgment. Total right to it. He does not have to ever show mercy if he does not want to. He can, if we sinned against him, he can show judgment. God shows mercy um, and he also shows judgment and it's totally up to him. But typically... Typically, principally, when you look at the Bible, the mercy is being shown to the oppressed. And I would argue Ben Hadid is hardly the oppressed. Hardly. So how do you live in God's will by knowing his judgment? What does that mean for us in 2019 on December the 20 something, 9th, 8th, 7th, whatever it is? What does that mean? What does it mean to know God's will by living in his judgment? It's going to bother me now, the 29th. Um, This is what I think it means. This is what I think it means. We as believers know the judgment of God for unbelievers. We know it. The, The judgment of God for unbelievers is eternal punishment forever. And so since that's the case, I would say... The only true way to live for God, for God is to live in his will by knowing his judgment. This means if I know the judgment for unbelievers, I also know command that's given to me is to share the gospel with them so that they will not perish forever. To live in the Lord's will is to, since I know his judgment, is to actually try to do something about it. Namely, obey God by obeying the Great Commission by telling them. 
Here's Christ. Here's how you can be saved. You don't have to walk down this path forever. I know the will of the Lord is that, that your judgment will come if you don't, you don't trust in Christ and repent. So my, my job in there is to go tell them the gospel so that they will become a Christ follower. So let me read this text. Psalm 126, 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. This is in the context of telling people about Jesus. Um, I know it's in Psalms. But there's a big explanation behind it that I don't have time for. But basically, one day, I'll preach it again one day. But verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Basically, this means that we should have a deep desire, even sometimes be brought to tears for the lost. We should weep sometimes for the fact that there are people that don't know Christ. It should bother us so much that they are lost, that we weep for them. We cry out to the Lord to save them. And then we also follow up by telling them about Christ, knowing that coming judgment is on those who oppose Yahweh. It's going to be terrible for them. Eternal punishment, eternal hell, eternal fire, eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal darkness forever. Forever. It's forever. In the same way that we get eternal life, they get eternal condemnation. That should utterly, utterly bother us. As Hudson Taylor would say, would that God make hell so real to the church that we could not rest. Make heaven so real that we must have men there. And make Christ so real that our supreme motive and aim is to make Jesus their joy by their conversion. So knowing the will of God is by knowing his judgment is by living each day to the best of our ability, to the time that we've allotted with different things that we have to do in our life, but still telling them, surely we know people that don't know Christ. Surely we do. And it should bother us. So that's the first one. As we go into chapter 21, we're going to see another story of Nahab. And I'm going to have to go faster. So here we go. Um, the second point in chapter 21 is this. As God has shown us mercy in the gospel, um, grace and mercy in the gospel, we should show mercy and grace to others. Chapter 21 is largely about justice, um, of which Ahab seems to have nothing about. So watch what happens here. This is, this is extraordinarily wicked. Um, now, Naboth, a Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel. So there's this random guy named Naboth in, in this city of Jezreel, um, Jezreel. And it was, happened to be beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And so Ahab just... Wants this plot of land so he can grow vegetables. <laughs> I like that, that land you have, Naboth. I think it would make a good vegetable garden instead of vineyard. Give it to me, basically. Um, so after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have a vegetable garden. Because it's right, right beside my house. And it, I'll give you a better vineyard for it if it seems good to you. I'll even give you its value in money if you don't want it. And so he offers him what could be considerably thought, thought of as, as a good deal. Like... I'll give you a better vineyard or I'll give you the right amount of money for it. Well, Naboth doesn't want to do it. Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Basically, this land's been in my family for a long time. I like it. I, it, I want to pass this on to, to my kids because uh, this land's important to us. So no deal. Sorry. Um, well, this is what happens. Ahab went to his house, vexed and sullen, the same kind of vexed and sullen as in previous in 43, whenever he realized all of Israel's under condemnation before me. He's vexed and sullen because he didn't get his, his, his piece of land. Vexed and sullen. Now watch this pout. This is a, this is a grown man. <laughs> this, is a, this is a grown man. He went into his house, vexed and sullen because of Naboth the Jezreelite said to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face, parenthetical, because he didn't want people to see him crying, and wouldn't eat any food. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable, right? And here comes his wife, who's just unbelievably wicked. But Jezebel, his wife, said, you know, hey, you're not at dinner. 
Why, why aren't you at dinner? Why is your spirit so vexed and, and you're not going to eat, eat food? And then he said to her, I mean, just imagine this pout reply here in verse 6. Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said, give me your vineyard or your money if it pleases you. And he said, I'm not going to give you your vineyard. Like this, like this is, I hear it in this amazingly kind of pout. Also, by the way, uh, he doesn't even quote Naboth exactly. If you notice, and he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. That's not what he said. He actually said, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's was what he said. He said, this land's been in my, my, my family for a long time. It's rightfully mine. The Lord Yahweh has given to me and I want to pass it down. And you just said, I'm not going to give it to you. Well, Jezebel, his wife said, do you govern Israel? Basically, are you the king? Are you a wimp? Um, she's telling him, listen, uh, I know you're Ahab and I know that you're an Israelite and she's, she's not an Israelite. She's a total pagan, but she's saying, I want you to adapt my Phoenician pagan worldview here, uh, Ahab and stop acting like you're a king that's subject to the law and get it through your thick skull that since you're the king, what you say is the law, you can just do whatever you want. Well, that's, that's obviously wicked. Um, but that's basically what she tells him. Uh, in verse seven, do not govern Israel, arise, eat bread, take heart and be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard, Naboth and the Jezreelites. So she wrote letters. Basically what she's going to do here, she's, she writes letters in Ahab's name, seals them up. She sends them to the leaders in Naboth uh, and said, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. Find verse 10, two worthless men to opposite him. And obviously you may know this, but in Jewish law, you have to have two people to substantiate a claim. And if two witnesses are there, then they can then it'll pass. So she said, make sure you find two. She knows that part of the law. Um, and let them bring a charge against him saying, you've cursed God and the king and take him out to stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the, and the leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word as it is written letters that had been sent to him. They proclaimed a fast and set uh, Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death with the stones. And they sent Jezebel saying Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And if you read second Kings nine twenty six, they also killed Naboth's children as well, the, the, his sons, just to make sure there was no passing it on to the sons. Now she just took care of everybody so that it's, it's the land's open, just a wicked person. Um, and so the first thing is this, that we can see verses one through 16 as God's people expect suffering and injustice. Um, God has shown us mercy in the gospel and we should also show others mercy. But as we're doing that, um, because there will always be opposition to Christians. We should expect, we should just expect suffering and injustice. It's if they treated our master that way, how will they treat the servants of the master? If they treated Jesus that way, we should not expect them to treat us differently than him. That's the first thing. Um, you can also see that standing up for justice comes with a price for him. It came at the price of his own life. Uh, and the second, the third thing I want you to see is verse 13. Uh, where it says, and they found two worthless men. They found two worthless men. This, this t- Naboth uh, prefigures Christ because they, as they found two worthless men to lead him to his death, this, this is what happened with Jesus. If you remember in Mark chapter 26, I'll read it uh, starting in verse uh, 51. Make sure I'm in the right chapter this time. <laughs> um, and behold, one of those who were Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the Most High and cut off his ear. Uh, I'm not in the right verse here. Where, look, Matthew chapter 26. I'm in cha- Matthew 26, but it doesn't start at 51. I'm going to keep going because it was actually a little bit later. Um, I got to do better at writing down these texts, but there's a place where they found two men to, uh, to say something against Christ. And he, in a lot of ways, Naboth prefigures Christ because the same thing happened to Jesus as well. We're going to have to keep going because I don't have time to find it. Um, it's 59, 59. Now the chief priest in the whole, I actually put it in my notes cause I knew this would happen. Chief priests in the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Then they might put him to death, but they found none through many false witnesses. Though many false witnesses came forward at last 
two came forward. That's verse 60 and 61 and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So in the same way uh, that Jesus, that Naboth had two worthless men bring false charges. So did Christ and Naboth in a small little way prefigures Christ here. Um, And then lastly, you can see ultimately God intervenes to bring justice in 17 through 26. Um, here's what happens. And you go to verse 26. We have the prophet come again. God still sees what happens. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite saying, arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord in the place where dogs looked up the blood of Naboth. So shall dogs look up your own blood. Basically he sends Elijah to say bad news, uh, Bad news, Ahab, what you did was wrong and it's, it's not going to be good for you. And so uh, this is story is a microcosm of how God ultimately intervened to bring justice to the, um, through Christ. So you can see here, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He said, he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut off every from Ahab, every male bond or free. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger of which you have provoked and have, because you have made uh, Israel to sin and of Jezebel. And Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs will eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city of dogs shall eat. And if anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the air shall eat. This is not good news, by the way, um, to, to know that dogs are going to eat you when you're dead. So here's what happens here. So I read this as we started off. There was none who sold, who, <clears throat> who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezreel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably, going after the idols like Je- Jezebel did and the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast off. And And then when Ahab heard those words, watch this, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejected. Now we're thinking Ahab, maybe the subtitle is right. Maybe he does repent. And then it says even this. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite saying like God's kind of nudging Elijah, like, look what Ahab's doing. Watch. And he says, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring disaster in his days, but on his own sons, I'll bring the disaster in his house. So let's ask the question and try to get a good idea of what's going on. Ahab's repenting. Really? Is he? Because the next chapter, he's kind of like a terrible guy again. Is he repenting? Well, perhaps, uh, the, the subtitles are not inspired. Uh, those are not from the Holy spirit, but let's, let's go through what we see. He puts on sackcloth. Yahweh seems to indicate as he's kind of talking to Elijah, that there has been some kind of humbling that's happened, but At the same time, there doesn't seem to be any kind of repaying to the family of Naboth. When Zacchaeus was saved, he's like, I want to repay. There was this desire in his heart to to make right the things he had done wrong. That doesn't seem to be what's accompanying Ahab here for real repentance. There doesn't seem to be any kind of ongoing renewal of mind, if you get to the next chapter, uh, of trusting in God. So maybe a way we can say is that this is, if we wanted to change the subtitle, Ahab's sincere remorse in the moment. Like maybe that's maybe the best way to kind of say it. Uh, perhaps, uh, which is good. Like remorse in the moment's good as long as it continues. Um, but justice is not going to come on him. God's going to be merciful and it's not going to come on him, but instead it's going to come on his sons and not him. You're like, well, that's not fair to his sons. Well, you should also know his sons are terrible. Uh, so they deserve it as well. If you want to know why I say that, look at chapter 22, uh, verse 51, 22, Ahiza, the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat. And he reigned just two years. Just two, not 22, like his dad over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal. He worshiped him. He provoked the Lord, the God of Israel to anger in every way that his father had done. So, you know, totally deserved. Um, So back to uh, 22. So 21. So ultimately we see here that God's shown mercy and grace to him. Uh, and we should, uh, we should also likewise do the same chapter 22. All right. We're going to go through this pretty, pretty quickly. So you can go ahead and put up the last one. Number three, submitting our lives because God is good. 
We should live a life of courage and trust. And that's not what he does here. He doesn't live a life of courage and trust. As I said in the very beginning here, he doesn't show, show courage or faith and trust in God at all. But we should. Uh, we should do that. Uh, the way I want to kind of break down 22 really quickly is just um, <clears throat> helping us see how if we're uh, living courageously for Christ, how the word of God helps us understand that. So uh, we have Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah. So you have the king of Israel and you have the king of Judah. You have Ahab, the king of Israel, and Jeho- Jehoshaphat, the king of uh, Judah, come to him. And they're like, listen, uh, we're kings in two different places, but the outlying people are going to try to take us. And so we need to do something. And so for three years, Syria and Israel continue without war. But in the third year, Jehosh- Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, he, he is an Israelite, came to the king and he said, hey, listen, Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and don't take it out of the hand of Syria. Like that's a city of ours. We should, we should take it back. <clears throat> and he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, as you're my people, you're my horse, etc." Then Jehoshaphat makes this thing. First, we should inquire for the word of the Lord. Like before we go out to war, what we've always done is ask God, if we go out, will we win? We should do that. And so verse five kind of dominates the chapter. It helps us understand that the word of the Lord, I don't know what that was, um, but the, the word of the Lord should dominate the way that we live our lives trusting in him. So they go to all the prophets. Uh, they gather around the prophets together, about 400 men. And they said, should we go out to Ramoth Gilead or should we refrain? And all 400 say, yes, we should. These are all Ahab's 400 prophets. They say, yes, we should. We should. Well, Jehoshaphat's like, uh, so 400, if 400 say yes, that seems questionable. Like, let's ask somebody else. Let's just make sure that's not the case. He's a little skeptical. He wants to ask another prophet. Um, but whatever we think about Ahab's prophets, the one thing that we can know is that in Jehoshaphat's mind, uh, Ahab's prophets don't define the word prophet because he wants to ask more. And he's like, don't you have somebody else? And this is what, this is what Ahab says. There is one other person that we can ask, but I hate him. (laughs) I hate this other guy. This one other prophet that's not here. I don't like him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. That's what he says in verse eight. Um, We all know why. But he doesn't like that guy. So it doesn't keep this guy, Micaiah, around. But Micaiah, he's going to give the honest word of God. And so you can see here, the king of Israel said, There is yet one by whom we inquire the Lord Micaiah, the son of Imla. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Like, that's, you shouldn't say that. But he's always honest. So for us to live courageously, you can see in verse 8, for us to live courageously for Christ, we must be rooted in the honest word of God. Micaiah is the one out of 400 who's willing to actually say the truth. Um, he's the one that... That's going to be brought. We can see in a, in a second that he, he always uh, wants to tell the truth. That's going to be in 14. So uh, they go get him. They bring him. A messenger goes to get him. And they ask him if he'll come. And, uh, but you have to let your word be like one and speak, uh, speak favorably. We want you to speak favorably to Ahab the king. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord t- says to me, that's what I will speak. I will speak exactly what God says. And when he had come to the king... Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to fight the battle? And he said, go up, triumph the Lord. We give it into your hand. But the king said, how many times must I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, um, okay, so here's what's going to happen. Uh, if you want to know the full thing of what's going to happen, here it is. So he's going to give him this prophecy uh, starting right here in verse, um, verse 17. I saw Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his own, to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he will prophesy, prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, here it is. So he's going to basically repeat the same thing, even more kind of extravagant. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the heavenly hosts standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go out, go up and uh, fall at remote Gilead? In one in 
And one said one thing and the other said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And he said to him, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Go now. Therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So you're going to go out, but it's going to bring disaster. Now, some people could say one commentator would say some people say is is he telling him that he's going to deceive him? Well, he's telling him a story that he's going to deceive him, but he's telling him the story that he's going to do that. And he's still going to follow anyway. So he's not really deceiving him at all. Uh, but nevertheless, we can see here that he's being free to speak the whole counsel of the word of God. So for us to live courageously, we must freely speak the whole word of God to people. As Christians, we're not free to speak whatever we want. We must speak the word of God. It will always it won't always be received well. God's truth isn't always popular. Of course, we need to speak it in love. We need to strive to be kind as we do it. But nevertheless, we must be aware at how free the word of God makes us to tell the truth. This is what the prophet here, Micaiah, is doing. He's telling the absolute truth and he's free to do it. Um, you can see that that's going to bring humiliation. Uh, Zedekiah, the son of Chennai, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek. He, so he strikes him and throws him in jail. That's basically the 24 through 28. And so for us to live courageously, we'll also receive humiliation just like he did. And then lastly, we can see in 29 through 30, um, we can trust the certainty of God's word. Because as he went out, they go out into battle. Uh, whenever he does it, Ahab like hides himself. He doesn't. The Jehoshaphat and him go out. Jehoshaphat, like usually the kings would kind of sit in battle on the back and, and have their king garb on. But only Jehoshaphat did that. Ahab decides to dress like a, like a regular fighter. And he goes out there and he's just running around. And this is what happens in 34. You can see a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Basically, what happened is um, a, a, a no-name shoots just randomly an arrow into it, trying to hit Joe Israel and hits the king uh, and the prophecy comes true. So what we see is that when God's word says something, it's going to be true and it's going to happen. That's what happens. He dies eventually. So that brings us to D. If we live courageously, we must trust the certainty of God's word. The prophet gives the word and it comes to pass for us. We can trust the certainty of God's word as we tell people what's true in the Lord's word. We can trust the certainty of it that it's going to happen. For instance, like the book of Revelation, um, we can trust we win like in the end. It's all in in the end we win, Um, which is really good news. So I'm going to conclude this way really fast um, with a few few ways that we can we can uh, apply this text to our lives. One, we need to practice marveling at God's grace that's been shown to us. Two, we need to continually live in the unlimited power of the Holy Spirit. Three, we need to treat others with the same mercy and grace that God has shown to us. Four, we need to look to Christ who avenges all people, even Naboth, um, and the wrongdoing that happens. And lastly, we should live courageously rooted in the word of God. Live courageously rooted in the word of God. The only king, as you read the king's, They're all bad. So the only king that we can trust is Jesus. And so let's um, realize all, all human kings are going to fail us. And the only savior we have is Christ. Let's pray.